0: up, guys. We are going to be joined shortly by CK, and I have Ansel here. Uh, I'm hijacking FedWatch for a second to remind all of you guys who are watching, tickets for Bitcoin 2023 are on sale now. I know they were crazy expensive, especially over the course of the last three, four months leading up to the conference. Well, right now, tickets are cheaper than they've ever been, and they will only go up in price from here. Use promo code FOMO and get 10% off. Join us I cannot say where it's going to be yet. It's TBD. I can confirm it will be in the United States if that is helpful for anyone else. But you know, if I get my way, it'll be somewhere sunny and warm. If uh, Alex gets his way, it'll be somewhere sunny and warm. And if David Bailey gets his way, it'll be somewhere sunny and warm. So that'll be (laughs) the only hint I give you. Um, And also I believe at the end of this week, or maybe at the end of next week, all of our conference swag that, like, I'm wearing our Sound Money Fest t shirt. Alex is wearing the B22 hoodie. The 22 hoodie is not for sale. Unfortunately, I realized that. Uh, one lucky viewer did receive it. It is in the mail for you right now. Um, and then Chris, our producer, is rocking the Sound Money Fest windbreaker. That is honestly my favorite piece of swag. Yeah, like, it just. Feel free to, oh, Alex is taking his shirt off, guys. Swag on swag. Sound money fest. Gotta rep it. This is it. only going to be available for a limited time. Use code FOMO for that as well and get 10% off there. Um, Don't forget to pick up your Moon Mag at that store, guys. Get a subscription. This is a beautiful design work by, shout out Annabelle from our team. It's a great uh, little Bitcoin treasure. And, you know, collect them, get two, get one and seal it up. This one's worth a $1,000. So just hodl, hodl your Bitcoin magazines. Look at that, guys. We're, we're helping you guys invest. Invest in Bitcoin, invest in clothes, invest in paper, magazines. You can do it all. Heck, you see those shoes in Alex's background? You guys, if you're not following Alex on Instagram, you should, because he was posting like all of the shots of him like actually doing that did not make nike shoes no but he took the nike shoes and designed them put on the bitcoin logo on it honestly it was so cool watching him rip that tape off i think i've re-watched that clip probably like 20 times maybe was not as sober as i should have been but it, it still looked awesome nonetheless <laughs> appreciate that be careful on instagram though not verified got a bunch of imposters for whatever weird reason and they all have rule, more followers than me. <laughs> rule of thumb, if you find any of us on Instagram, our accounts are the ones with less followers than our fake account. Um, CK has joined us, and I am going to be handing the mic over to him, the moment he shows us his pretty face.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, excited for this chat. We're going to jump into a lot of the craziness that's happened since we jumped on. I don't know who listened to Ansel's last Fedwatch watch solo, but uh, he hit on a lot of great information. And honestly Ansel, I love I love that format. So uh, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin and markets and uh, that was kind of the original format on that show. So hopefully we can keep that rolling. But um, a lot of good stuff to unpack here. We got a lot of great sound bites from different central bankers. We're not going to tease them out clip by clip, but really we're just gonna kind of talk them through. Uh, and then hopefully we can add in some uh, some foreign clips t- clips to uh, to future uh, streams that we do here on Bitcoin Magazine Live. Ansel, do you want to kind of jump into uh, high level what your what you saw from this IMF debate? Other than the fact that it performed less well than Bitcoin twenty two content on Bitcoin Magazine, really insane to see <laughs> Bitcoin Magazine outperforming CNBC uh, streams with. Uh, with you know central bankers from the major uh central banks and financial uh institutions and governing bodies but i mean i guess that's what the people want
2: yeah so uh upfront that was my fault of getting the clips to you guys late but uh hopefully in the future we'll get it down and and maybe i'll even do a supplementary episode and break it down by myself like uh ck was saying he likes that format so i might even do that this week we'll see if uh we can get that out but yeah overall this was a imf meeting and after the imf meeting they had a round table with uh let's see who was all there of course jerome powell and christine lagarde also managing director of the imf kristalina georgiavina i think you say her last name the indonesian finance minister i won't even try to pronounce her name and the barbados prime minister mia motley so they had a it wasn't even a debate, they call it a debate, but it was just a roundtable where they kind of voiced their opinions and their concerns about the global economy right now. I thought it was really interesting. I mean, we kind of knew what uh, Powell and Lagarde were going to say. But I thought the one of the interesting members of this panel was the Indonesian finance minister, because she has an emerging market view. And she was very well spoken. She broke it down in a in a way that was pretty plain English uh, for people. And I, I just really appreciate that that perspective, but overall it was an interesting back and forth and we can break down some of the major points that uh, we kind of both brought out of this.
1: No, hundred percent. I mean, it was very interesting again, to kind of have these four people. I think in particular, the ones that we focus on were Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde and Uh, I'm blanking out on the name of the uh, director of the MF, uh, 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 Kristalina, Kristalina. so uh, they had some really interesting commentary uh, regarding inflation, regarding the differences between the US economy, the European economy, Uh, very interesting uh, perspectives on Ukraine, Russia, uh, what those activities uh, had to do with them at meeting their mandates, uh, maybe casting off some blame there. Uh, but I mean, I don't know if you want to just kind of jump into uh, the first clip that we were uh, that we kind of picked out here with uh, with Christine Lagarde or how you wanted to kick this off.
2: Yeah, so I'll just kind of talk through what she said here. Um, so she's the president of the ECB, and I have been pretty bearish on the euro and on the ECB for several years now. And she said that they're main risk was towards higher inflation you know if like if you had to pick uh whether they're going to overshoot above their target or below their target uh, on inflation she said the risk is to the upside and then she said the risk to growth was on the downside so they are in a very tough situation they can't tighten because the risk is to the downside on growth and they would go you know it would put them directly into recession um now powell kind of responded to that and he Uh, said that the u.s economy was much more robust and so they had more room to be more hawkish where lagarde said that she was she had this owl pin on and she's like i'm not a hawk or a dove that's i wear this owl pin that's so european that that comment but um anyways the uh, one thing that i pulled out too was that she saluted the sanctions and all along she's like blaming this and that for their problems, right? And she doesn't even uh, want to, or she blames Russia, but she doesn't blame the reaction by the European Union on these sanctions and uh, what the effect that has on the economy. Did you have any thoughts about that?
1: No, I I, I mean, I took notes here on our doc uh, as I was watching it, and I, I pulled out a lot of the same things. You know, one is this kind of idea that Russia did something that is inexcusable and therefore everything is kind of Russia's fault because they did this inexcusable, horrible thing. And I guess that is the narrative that all of these Western central bankers are taking. And it's kind of like this uniting force that's bringing them together, which is pretty interesting. But with, with that being said, I think there is something to be said about when it comes to like, the diplomacy, at least when it comes to NATO, is almost, in in Europe, is has become like permissioned, right? And and Russia was not getting anywhere there. I'm not trying to excuse what Russia is doing, but there's something to be said about the permissionlessness of war. If you need to, you know, take over resources, if you need to make things happen, you don't have to ask for permission to to, you know, put men into combat. So, like I, I just think that the framing of this is inexcusable. I just don't think it's honest. And I know that in past shows you've discussed about how NATO and the U.S. have, you know, pushed Russia in a difficult position because of you know putting weapons in Ukraine, being involved in Ukraine, and having that as a strategic territory between Europe and Russia. I'm not a geopolitical expert or anything like that, but uh, I, I do think that the framing that Lagarde Jerome, a lot of these central bankers are using in regards to the dynamics of the conflict, maybe aren't necessarily the most honest.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I try to stay away uh, these days from um, being outspoken on the Russia situation. But I, I think it's very glaringly obvious that sanctions are also an act of war, right? Sanctions starve populations, and they hurt the economy. So there's, there's millions of poor people in Europe that are getting completely wrecked. You know, there's people on the edge of starvation, even in the socialist republics of Europe, that uh, are hurt by these sanctions, right? They don't have to do the sanctions. And I think that that is, I mean, there, it's, it's voluntary on both sides. The war is voluntary aggression uh, by Russia, and the sanctions are voluntary aggression by the EU. But of course, they don't Ever want to mention that they they say pretty much whatever they can do, whatever they want in response to this Russian aggression and so. um, Anyway, I wanted to start building this narrative just from this these first few comments and show that they don't have any problem with destroying demand within their selective economies so Lagarde she praises the sanctions which destroys demand in the EU. And Powell, a little bit later, we'll probably cover this, that, you know, he talks about destroying demand in the US, and they have no problem
1: with that. Well, so what, and this is kind of jumping ahead, but what Powell is talking about, how the central bankers can't control the supply side aspect. And obviously, other things, uh, you know, impact that, that's supply chains, that's politics, that is foreign relations, that's war, that is what affects the the supply side but what they can control and manipulate is the demand side and i think that that is a very key theme that you're bringing up here
2: yeah absolutely so let's move on to that next one um the well yeah we'll have to skip ahead quite a bit because then they start talking about actually what makes up this inflation well, that let, they're let's all not suffering skip from. ahead let's not okay. skip ahead i okay. do
1: i do want to like say on one more thing with uh lagarde um it was really interesting that she noted she was like, a- after she saluted the, the sanctions on Russia, obviously, she believes are justified. we're not going to get into w- what's the deal there. But she did say that whatever is happening around the world because of Russia and Ukraine conflict, that is going to impact their plans, right? So she kind of alludes to like, we have a goal, we have a mandate, we have these plans. And our plans, our trajectory is being impacted uh, by this this conflict that is unforeseen as in outside of our control, uh, which is very interesting framing as well.
2: Yeah, we've heard that over the years from a Federal Reserve chairman as well, where they they want to blame the global economic situation for maybe some indecision on their part. And Lagarde does kind of sidestep multiple... You know they try to pin her down like when are you going to actually stop qe and you know she's like oh we have to see when it's going to be appropriate so um yeah they, they use these geopolitical situations to uh sidestep making a firm commitment which is understandable i mean they are data dependent and they said that on this this uh, round table here that they are data dependent and i always like to point out you know if you're acting after the data comes in that means you're a follower you're not leading the market. You're not moving the market. You're actually following the market.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, markets are in control. It's just these central bankers are, are throwing wrenches into the system, right? They're, that, that's, I think that's the key of FedWatch, guys. This is our underlying message is that um, these central bankers, they are not in control. They're a part of a bigger system, and all of their interventions, uh, they have unknown effects. And they talk about it on this on this panel. They talk about how there's unintended effects of what they do. Sometimes they don't think about those unintended uh, effects that are just thinking about their specific objectives. And the reality is, is that I found it really weird watching them, you know, these four people kind of, even they could have sounded intelligent and reasonable. And I, oftentimes they do out of context. But when you like think of like, when you zoom out and you're like, wow, these people, nomad, you know, are controlling massive institutions that have massive impacts on human suffering and human uh, and, 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 and uh, I guess human progress. Right. H- huge, huge impacts on them. And, and we're letting old dinosaurs control that. Uh, And they don't have as much information as they need. They don't have more information in the market. And uh, they have bad incentives. You know, some of these people, you can point to Lagarde, you know, she is an accused criminal. She's a convicted criminal. So um, it's crazy to just watch a panel of four people that have all this power and you know, it really makes it feel like Bitcoin is the future because Bitcoin is it, it, it automates all of this. It takes it away from them and it gives it back to market forces. and it's it's a really much more pure way in order to have an economic system. I know we're kind of getting off the rails here, so I'm going to pass it back to you, Ansel. I'll
2: just say I, I think it that's just a feature of the market or reality is that they are always behind a little bit, right? Like if because I, I was trying to think, well back in 1915 w- was the fed you know more up to speed with what was going on in the economy and i don't think so back then either they were always behind the free market is always ahead with more information and uh, i mean that's that's the basic argument why we want free markets versus planned economies because the free market efficiently can allocate these resources without even thinking about it. Right. And they, they make mistakes. So I, I totally agree with what you said there. Should we move on to Powell's next comment? Let's do it. He said that because they, they brought up the inflation question to him and you know, he's like, well, we're going to use our tools. This is a quote quote. We will use our tools to get demand and supply back in sync with their 2% goal. Um, so, how are they going to do that? Um, that g- brings me back to they, they don't control the supply side of things. So, they have to be drilling down on the demand side. Uh, if you have under supply and you have a supply shock, what do you have to do to demand to get that back in line and get your inflation down?
1: You got to bring it down.
2: Yeah, you got to bring demand down. <laughs> so, that's what they're, I mean, that's what came across with, of all of Powell's comments they're targeting the demand side on purpose because that's all they can control. So what do you think about that idea?
1: I mean, the, it's, it's obvious that that's what they're saying. It's just, when you put it into layman's term, it's, it's a lot more uh, sinister. And again, they're they're calling it controlling or they're managing or bringing it back in sync. But what they're actually doing is they're manipulating. That's the key word here. They are manipulating behavior or they're attempting to at least uh, and, you know, Ansel, so I'm sure you'll say, like, they're just managing expectations, this is expectation yeah. management, and that is what creates uh, this kind of behavior. But um, regardless, that their intention is to manipulate, and I think that that is one of the keys. And you're right, they say, they say that they can't control demand. We know that they can't control demand other than, you know, whatever they're doing on a political level to, uh, to impact demand. They can't control supply, but their tools allow them theoretically to control demand, and that's what they're going to try to manipulate,
2: yeah, I mean, they can't control supply in one aspect they can put sanctions on countries right so like they they can they can uh, seize the Russian central bank's assets and that's going to put supply down, right but they can't manipulate supply upwards
1: um is that a central so, yeah. bank function or is that like is that more political
2: the sanctioning um, well it's depends I guess on the country you're in I Powell remember Powell was very upset that they uh, put the sanctions on the Russian central bank because he was worried about what it would do to liquidity in the you know global financial system uh, as of now it doesn't seem to have done much because Russia's continued to be able to pay their bills and haven't been defaulted. I mean, Citigroup and some of these other banks in the US that were holding these millions and millions, hundreds of billions, I think, of dollars worth of Russia uh, central bank's assets, they've been allowing them to use those assets to pay their debts, uh, but they can't do anything else with them. So um, it has it really hasn't accomplished what they thought it was going to accomplish. Um, but yeah, Powell was upset with that decision. At least central bankers will be consulted, I would believe, in all countries. But yes, I I, I don't think that's a role of the central bank, more of a political role, obviously.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I was kind of leaning on is I feel like there's the politics. And that's, I think, when it comes to impacting supply, for the most part, it's it's political um, when it comes to sanctions, war, that kind of thing. Um,
2: oh, let let me break in there real quick too. Um, that's one reason why Raskin was not put on the, the Board of Governors, because she wanted to use monetary policy to direct capital away from fossil fuel companies. And that did not seem to be appropriate. So the the Fed at least tries to be apolitical, um, but not that's not guaranteed. I mean, Lagarde didn't sound like she was apolitical up there, did she?
1: I mean, none of them sounded like they they were apolitical, and if anything, it sounded like at least they were united on the front against Russia. Again, I'm not trying to to say a lot about how they should be, but um, where at one point during the COVID crisis, it seemed like there was a divide between uh, the U.S. and then uh, the rest of uh, kind of like the Western central banking apparatus. Uh, now, at least when it comes to uh, working together uh, to uh, navigate the tidal wave that has been created by Russia and Ukraine, they're, they're on the same boat, if you will.
2: Yeah, and they do talk about that a little bit there in the discussions. Very um, specifically, they talk about the rules that Lagarde says, you know, we, all these economies have prospered under this rule, and when you join the international community, then you are kind of, it's an implied acknowledgement of this rule set. Uh, and so I think that's one of the things breaking down. People don't really care too much about what the IMF says anymore. They don't care what the UN says anymore. It's, they're not seen as being legitimate international organizations from all economies around the world. So um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'll also say that Powell, like literally said in here, that the market is processing what they're saying. That's a direct quote. The market is processing what we're saying. And so, yeah, that's their whole monetary policy goal is to talk and form expectations of the future.
1: Uh, He did also say that we should, that multiple people on the committee Think that it's appropriate to have multiple fifty basis point hikes, and that multiple fifty basis point hikes are on the table. So um, that is an expectation that it seems as though the the U.S. Fed is trying to push over the past few months, and it seems like they're going to continue to push that narrative. And you know, I guess those consequent actions.
2: Yeah, funny tidbit was: Did you hear the Indonesian uh, finance minister a little bit later? And she said, well, Powell just told us that there's going to be a 50 basis point hike. And everyone's like, no, 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 but he didn't say that. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) So, yeah. I didn't quite catch that. But um, I mean, like, honestly, like, you know, it's like, hey, you're in a PR meeting about your company you're talking about to the rest of the world and you just let something slip on accident like that. That's kind of happening left and right on these calls. And uh, they're not 100% in sync, and like I said, I just see the boomer counter of the traditional financial system, uh, and it's going to just get absolutely clobbered by the efficiency of an automated monetary system, which is Bitcoin.
2: Absolutely. Should we move on to where Lagarde talks about the makeup of CPI?
1: Okay, so- Let's do it.
2: The She said that about 50% of their CPI rating, which- is coming in at 7.4% in March. Uh, 50% of that is due to energy alone. And she said, if you take out energy and food, which are both highly dependent on supply chains, right? Especially for Europe, uh, energy is much less dependent on, or energy prices are much less dependent on um, the international supply chains for the U.S., but for Europe, of course, all of their energy is coming from abroad, pretty much. So if they strip out energy and food, their core inflation was only 2.9%. And so she reiterated about the supply shock. Supply shock, And that's when Powell got into, oh, no, but our, our policies can't do anything about supply. So um, do you have any thoughts on the CPI discussion they had there?
1: Well, I mean, again, I think it it gives you a glimpse into how they posture. But when you think about their like, quote unquote, reasonable talking points, it really, when you think about it, it unravels, right? So first of all, she's saying, hey, let's just subtract food and energy because those are Russia's fault. Uh, So actually, we're not doing that bad of a job. We're looking at under 3% inflation on our core inflation, right? But the problem is here is that the food and the energy costs are going to impact everything else one so that she completely ignores that and she she tries to reframe as oh hey you know we that's russia's fault we can just subtract it but two, it like you can tell that she's not being honest like you can tell that she's trying to spin sell uh a rotten egg right you know she's saying hey like, things are bad, but, you know, we're, it's not our fault. We're doing a good job. Like, the core CPI, that's what we're dealing with. She's not trying to educate people on the impacts of the complex global economy. And it's, again, it makes you really question these people's intentions and, uh, and the incentives that they're operating by, right? So, I mean, sure, hey, you can frame it however you want, Christine Lagarde, but you're, you're a snake. You're trying to deceive the public on the reality and ultimately you are screwing up. You are blessing and 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 saying good job on the sanctions that are causing these price hikes that are hurting the lowest people in your uh, constituency. So, I mean, like these are the people that that we're fighting against. Like this is what Bitcoin is here to eradicate.
2: Yeah, and a very important part of that is, you know, we reached this fragile place where energy is 50% of their CPI because of their past decisions, right? Like the way that the economy has evolved under ECB stewardship has put them in a place now that the CPI is rising. So any way you slice it, uh, the ECB, at least their narrative, their push towards globalization and and fragility uh, of the credit system and, and all of that. That has put them in a place where they are today. But I have to point out as well that it's a hard job to measure inflation. And I mean, it, it should be easy, right? We should be able to say how much money was printed. That should be the inflation rate. But of course, we can't do that. So what they have to do is try to decide what percentage of consumer prices is made up of energy and then how much is the, are the sanctions or the supply chains affecting those prices changes? And it, it's just, it gets really, really comp, overly complicated very, very quickly. Uh, and the reason why they can't just say, we printed this much money, that's the inflation rate, is because they don't really print money.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to get into the details here because people like agree, disagree, whatever. Ultimately, they're not in control. They create chaos. They're lying to your face. They're going to be automated away. Let's keep breaking down, you know, this BS. Let's go to the next clip, right? So um, I think, what is it? This next clip was regarding, or sorry. No, the, the next clip here um, is specifically, you know, targeted towards Powell, um, but talking about globalization and the impacts of globalization. I have to give a shout out to the moderator. She was asking good questions. She was framing things uh, in order to try to get them to talk about uh, things that are a little bit outside of their uh, scope of control that cr- crisscrossed uh, their jurisdiction. So, shout out to the moderator. But, you know, she got them to start commentating on, uh, let's just say, the reversal in globalization and the onshoring of a lot of production uh, in these places that have gotten very used to, you know, importing a lot of stuff from cheaper production hubs.
2: Yeah. And she first poses that uh, question about globalization to Powell. And she said, do we, or she asked, do we see a reversal of globalization and a shrinking of the length of supply chains, you know? And he's like, well, we could be seeing that. It's very possible that we see from this point forward a reversal in globalization. Of course, that was, like to me, uh, the way I kind of understand these different central bankers and their different uh, uh, constituents that they represent, That's that is not good to hear if you are Europe, right? Because Europe doesn't, they need, they rely on globalization for their consumers to buy their heavy machinery from Germany. They uh, rely on Russia for their, their energy needs. And so when you, t- when you tell them that globalization is going away, to me, in, as if I were a European, I would be like, of course not, it's not going away. And that's actually what Lagarde said. Lagarde got to speak later and she's like, oh no, we're just revisiting the terms of trade. Globalization is not going away. Um, so there was definitely a disagreement there, right, between Powell's position on, yeah, we probably will see some sort of reversal in globalization to Lagarde saying, oh, no, no, no uh, deglobalization in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, Powell was definitely, you know, kind of tiptoeing around the question. He said, we haven't reversed yet. We're just slowing down. We may see a reversal. Um, but he did say there's costs and benefits that globalization uh, has a cost, and that there could be a different world with higher inflation, less productivity, but more security, more reliability of supply chains. Uh, So, uh, you know, those words came out of his mouth. Like Ansel said, Lagarde, of course, played it down. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand like Europe is in a very specific situation that's very different than the US, it's very different from China, it's very different from India, Uh, and Europe needs globalization. Europe needs the current kind of order of things in order for it to be viable. Uh, So that needs to color how you're kind of analyzing what Lagarde is saying, analyzing uh, Europe's kind of position between Russia, uh, the US, and other world powers.
2: Yeah, that's one reason why the Europeans went out and were colonialists, right? They went out to uh, colonize these places and create a complete self-sufficient economy um, where the U.S. doesn't necessarily have to do that. Europe has achieved that now. Instead of colonialization, uh, they've achieved that through globalization. And the U.S. doesn't really need to worry about that too much because we have a relatively self-sufficient economy. And I would say maybe... Eastern, you know, the Eastern Asian countries are relatively self-sufficient as well. So um, Europe is is in a very unique position on the map, and that that drives their their need for globalization. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I thought was interesting was the uh, Indonesian Prime Minister. She brought up a good point, and she said that um, there has been a she's known as an emerging market you know, head of an emerging market bank, she noticed that change from using the term efficiency to security and that her idea of kind of the emerging market consensus or the, the feeling out there in emerging markets is that globalization is on a shaky ground. Um, so to me, that, that says a lot more uh, than what Lagarde says or even what Powell says is this is straight from an emerging market uh, central bank head and she said that they, the emerging markets, are feeling it.
1: I mean, again, it's the it's the people who need the efficiency, who run the tightest margins, who make the least amount of money, uh, who feel it the most, and that's the emerging markets, that's the poorest in developing markets. Um, so it makes sense. And again, I can't help but just think of like. You know, Bitcoin is the ultimate solution to kind of uh, fix a lot of these issues. You know, I don't want to be too uh, hyperbolic here. But again, like for all of these issues, (laughs) there's Bitcoin Um, and um, it's just interesting to think about how, uh, hey, you know the world is turning to security. The world is valuing reliability. Oh, guess what? We have the most reliable, most secure, most decentralized, most localized protocol for value ever, and it's you know burgeoning here in the the, the last twelve years, just in time, right? Uh, and of course, we talk about Satoshi Nakamoto's timing uh, and uh, the message in the genesis block. Chancellor on the brink of the second bailout, um, and you know how. A lot of what has gotten us to this point in the fiat system has colored why Bitcoin was created in the first place, um, but just makes me bullish. I mean, antel you've been following this space for a long time. You know, have you seen kind of the thesis that Bitcoin critics have against the traditional system just continue to play out? And uh, how has it colored your kind of certainty or confidence in this new versioning system that is Bitcoin?
2: So you mean the the narratives um, that we hear in the sound money space leveled against the status quo?
1: Yeah.
2: Well, um, yeah, man, I've been following this since roughly the year 2000, maybe 1998 when I was a senior in high school. But uh, it's, I think it's played out to a degree, but it's a lot slower. And the reason why that is, is, I mean... Stop me if you don't want me going down this road, but at first I thought it was going to be this uh, inflationary end right because the gold bugs the sound money folks, they said that we're printing a lot of money and there was going to be this uh, inflationary end, but the reason why they've been able to kick the can so much is because it's actually a deflationary end and all you need to do to stop a deflationary collapse is take out more debt but you can't ever solve it. You just kick the can down the road and you lose a little bit of growth and you lose a little bit of productivity uh, and you go on to the next crisis. So um, I think things are definitely playing out. Um, but yeah, and since Bitcoin has been around, it's definitely sped up and it's definitely become more mainstream. Um, everybody knows about Bitcoin that you talk to out there. Everyone's heard the arguments of Bitcoin. And so it's definitely getting much more into common the common man's knowledge set about what's going on and remember that quote was it from Henry Ford or one of the Rothschilds or whatever that famous one about uh if somebody if you if the people knew how the money worked there would be a riot tomorrow or something like that so um Henry Ford yeah I
1: think that's um, Henry Ford yeah
2: so it's getting more and more like that right we're, we're approaching that singularity of where people understand how the system works and there will be a force A movement a revolution towards a new type of money or a new type of system and that will be bitcoin
1: yeah no i mean again uh i don't know how many of y'all have read the mandibles but it's a book that's kind of making its way through the bitcoin sphere um and i don't want to you know uh Spoil too much of the book, but in the book, you know, the average people that are like living through through the time period that it's talking about, uh, money is something that they're hyper aware of, and they are very aware of what's happening in the markets, and they're very aware of what it means to be a reserve currency of the world, and what is the reserve current currency of the world. Uh, and I think that that's something that Westerners don't experience, but maybe people, you know, in the the global south, people in third world countries. They know all too well what it feels like to not have a secure, sound, reliable monetary system and having to think about what's happening globally a lot more in the, the grand scheme of just getting the, the goods, services, resources that you need. So, um, you know, I, I think, like you said, the, the awareness of the problem is growing in the, um, the understanding, the arguments for why sound money are growing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited for the singularity. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, the Bitcoin economy continues to grow as the awareness of the problem grows. And, you know, those two things, you know, speed up uh, people realizing that, hey, the solution is here. It's Bitcoin. And we can just continue to use it and, 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 and move off this broken system.
2: Excellent. Yeah, excellently said there. I, I think um, the way I tied Bitcoin into this IMF meeting is that what we saw there on the video, and of course, we'll link to everything in the show notes for you guys, but uh, the, the, the medium is the message a lot of times, right? And the medium here was smiling, laughing central bankers all getting along and agreeing and having a good old time. They have multiple people from the emerging markets, and, you know, everyone's getting along and, and they all have the same goal moving forward. But that's most likely not the case, right? And so Bitcoin is there to, and we could tell that under the surface, we, we saw some of those disagreements with Powell and the guard on globalization. Uh, they, they acknowledged multiple times that they have different challenges because of their economies are fundamentally different, right? They have different, they said they had different underlying inflation and so their economies are different they have different problems and you can you can feel there's disagreement there even though the the message they're trying to portray is one of unity so bitcoin is there for enemies right bitcoin is there when that unity breaks down and when people don't agree uh, and there's warfare even out there heaven forbid there's warfare and sanctions but Bitcoin is there for these times. It's there for the hard times.
1: One hundred percent. I mean, again, that's one of the benefits of like Bitcoin's censorship resistance, uh, global nature. Um, all of these things make Bitcoin that perfect subset to you know bail people out of this this chaos, and then again, be that system that we build on. It's not just the life raft, but um, it's the the life raft that is actually the foundation for the future as well. So um, I think it's it's really exciting. And again, for those who pay attention to what these central bankers are saying, like it should make you bullish. Um, but also, like you should be wary of what's going to happen, because they're definitely forecasting what they're going to try to make happen and what they're going to try to make the narrative be. Uh, so again, I don't know how effective that is. I'm not going to comment on uh, what they can and can't do, but they're they're at least telling you what they're going to try to do.
2: Absolutely. And another place that you see some tension is in the recent, I believe it was a G7, but it might have been the G20 meeting, and uh, you know Russia is part of that. And as soon as re- the Russian um, representative started speaking, Janet Yellen stood up and walked out. So there is a lot of animosity. In some of these larger organizations, I mean, the the way the UN has treated this Russian situation by um, out of the ordinary, they rejected a lot of calls for votes and um, representation from a Russian representative, and uh, so they're losing. All of these international organizations are slowly losing credibility, and that's what Bitcoin does very well because it doesn't need anyone's credibility. It is what it is. As long as there's 21 million, uh, Bitcoin will keep functioning the way it, do- it does.
1: Well, I mean, and at the beginning, we talk about how this is kind of an idea that is pushed uh, and, and framed by Jason Lowry, but war is permissionless, right? And I'm not justifying, I mean, I'm not trying to say we should use war, but that is a feature of war is that it is permissionless. You don't have to ask for permission to, wage war especially if you are a uh, a national power uh and then you look at uh diplomacy in the un international diplomacy in the un uh and different aspects of trying to you know work with europe work with the west work with other countries abroad and sometimes you just can't get what you want you can't reason with and sometimes you get completely shut out of and disrespected and, and again uh when you see how these central bankers talk about the situation, they do not take or uh, or uh, they don't take credit for or responsibility for what their side may have done to worsen the crisis. And until you can, until both sides can understand how they got there, it's very difficult to resolve it. It really is. And you know, it seems like the West right now is like sanction them, crush them, defeat them. That is, they're not they're not even willing to say you know, maybe we did something wrong. Maybe this is not a situation where people were in position to, uh, to get what they want. Maybe there's a way that we could find diplomacy work better, but that that's not the, that's not the attitude and everything is that's happening is, is just permission unpermission or is, is is absolutely like, you know, there's no reason for it to happen. And therefore, um, you know, there's this boogeyman that is Russia to blame.
2: Yeah. And if you look back on the grand scheme of history, right, most of the time is people not trading with each other and there are zones of control and um, regions of influence. And that's why uh, Powell said in this IMF thing, he called it friend shoring and I've never heard that term before, but um, obviously it would be a smaller group, a group of trade partners and you shorten your supply chains to those select few in your smaller uh, partnership of of trade or trade organization. No longer will we have the WTO, the World Trade Organization, but we we'll might we might have like the AUKUS trade organization or the uh, EU and Northern Africa trade organization or something like that, right? So there there's going to be these um, these smaller uh, regions of trade, and that is the if you go back in history, that is the standard throughout of all, all of history. But the uh, the thing that's non-standard is these last 50 years where we've had an international order.
1: So Ansel, I guess just to kind of close this one out, um, any kind of big themes that you're seeing the rest of this year that you'd want to point out? And I mean, any kind of just like closing words on on this panel in general.
2: For themes, I'll go back to the episode of last week when I talked uh, a lot about CPI and I talked about, yield curve inversions and things like that. Uh, I do see CPI coming down uh, over the next few months. I think we're pretty much at peak CPI right now, and that is gonna change a lot of things. So if, if CPI drops to 7%, then down to 5%, what is that gonna do to the Fed's narrative, right? Um, so we, we're gonna have to figure that out, but I don't see inflation or CPI going hot through the end of the year. I think it's gonna come down pretty dramatically. Um, other than that, I will just say I think the the uh, global supply chains will continue to get better. I don't. I mean, I know that there is stuff going on with China, but we have already learned from twenty twenty. A lot of people diversified their supply chains, and so this time around on the lockdown, I think the effects of a Chinese um, uh, problem in the supply chain will be much less than it was in twenty twenty. And uh, I think the Russian situation, I mean, it's already outside of many of the news cycles because the ruble has recovered, the economy seems to be doing okay in Russia, and the big, the big fallout is in the EU. It's not actually in the Russian economy, so um, I think supply chains will get better, but CPI will come down.
1: I mean, it's it's hard to believe that there's nothing happening in the Russian economy in terms of fallout. But I'm sure that there's just chaos across the board between uh, everyone who is directly affected by uh, by this conflict. Um, well,
2: hold on. Let, let me let me caveat that. I mean, in the terms of their currency and their commodity prices and things like that. Uh, yes, their GDP is said to it probably will decrease by about ten percent this year, but it won't be completely destroyed like a lot of the eu thought that they could do with these sanctions
1: yeah i think that uh there's a lot of praise from Lagarde on sanctions and their effectiveness i think that it's a lot more overblown and it's definitely a double-edged sword right it is you know when you sanction it's like blocking someone on twitter when you block them you can't see their stuff. They can't see your stuff, right? So it's a two-way street. It's affecting both parties. Um, And that's going to have effects. These are complex systems that are heavily intertwined. So um, again, I question these central bankers. I question their understanding of these systems. Uh, We didn't go through the clip, but there was a clip that um, was going viral on Twitter earlier of uh, Kristalina Again, I mentioned it earlier talking about how they don't necessarily think through the second and third order effects of their decisions. And that's obvious, guys. It's obvious. And they're they're freaking wrecking things left and right. Um, that That's why Bitcoin, that's why we pay attention to them here at FedWatch. Um, Ansel, I mean, in terms of What's going around uh, in the US, we haven't really talked a ton about that. We haven't talked a ton about like the COVID lockdowns in China. I do think that if we have to kind of talk here for three or four more minutes, it is interesting to point out that, you know, this time around the world is a little bit more diversified away from China. And we're seeing like horror stories of lockdowns in Shanghai and things like that. And then on the flip side, you know, there's massive public events in the West, especially in the US where we're seeing kind of like uh, immunity to uh, this overreach a second or third time around. I don't know if I'm praising the West too much today, but um, I'm kind of curious what your uh, interpretation of uh, this East-West China versus U.S. kind of uh, reactions to the, the COVID developments.
2: You hit the nail on the head with the diversification of the Chinese supply chains. And if they haven't done it yet, they at least have plans to do it and they've thought through it they've run some of the you know cost benefit analysis of doing it in many of these companies and so as they see these supply chains breaking down once again in china they're going to have a bit much better idea how to handle it now uh, so yeah i don't think it's going to be nearly as big of a deal plus you know we have demand slowing in the united states so yes we have uh, a shortage coming from china of goods but we also have demand uh, falling in the US. So uh, I think the the effects of this will be much less. You also mentioned um, the West and not pursuing similar lockdowns, um, or maybe that they they have seen the error of their ways and they won't pursue similar lockdowns. But I, I, I kind of, you know, I've been talking about this pendulum idea for a very long time, where uh, the the progressives got so far on one side that it's it's bound to swing back the other way and now we see things like netflix crashing in value um some people say it's because of like woke type programming then you have uh, cnn plus crashing and burning which is you know obviously a propaganda arm of progressives and you see disney getting kind of smacked around down there down here in florida and then we see Twitter getting taken over by Elon Musk. So those are just four major things happening just in media that tell me that this, this, um, uh, I guess, public appetite or public uh, resistance to this type of um, hard, hardcore lockdowns is really taking shape, and it's not going to happen again because uh, the pendulum has swung back, and people are waking up to the power that they actually do have uh in the role of politics
1: so we've seen a lot of let's just call it uh yuan and china simping from uh elites leaders in the the global financial space uh, you know ray dalio warren <laughs> buffett or uh, yeah warren buffett charlie bunger and many many more uh why are you bullish on the West? Again, like when I see Shanghai and see like the horror threads that journalists are posting from there, like there's no reason to, to the reaction of the state. It's almost like an autoimmune disease to some degree. And I'm kind of curious, like, you know, I I agree with you. I'm bullish on the West, at least to some extent throughout this. I don't, I'm not going to simp China and Yuan, but you know, what's your logic here? And then we can wrap it.
2: Well, some people might say I'm simping for the U.S., uh, but I, I think that the U.S. in particular, my, my position is the U.S. is best suited for the coming couple of decades, not necessarily the West in general, the U.S. I think Europe is going to have major, major problems. Uh, we already see some, like um, Jeff Schneider on Twitter, he talked about uh, that there could be an ulterior motive behind some of these lockdowns in China. And I responded, I said, scary version is that this is uh, some political opponents of Xi trying to stoke civil unrest. And I, I don't know, I, I, I think that most other places in the world are going to have a very hard time in deglobalization and in the credit collapse, but the U.S. is not perfectly suited, when, you know, we're not perfectly insulated from it, but we are the most insulated economy. So that's why I'm bullish on the U.S. in particular and not the West in general.
1: Gotcha. So bullish on the U.S. in particular. You are my favorite U.S. and USD and tether simp, Ansel. So you <laughs> um, you brought a lot of signal with that position, but you know, let's just call it what it is. You're a simp. Uh, and yeah, y'all Bitcoiners, come here to FedWatch. Come listen to me just ramble about central bankers being bad and and Ansel simping the U.S. dollar. That's what we got today. Uh, follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Ansel, where can people find you?
2: Bitcoinandmarkets.com. I do a podcast there. I also do a free weekly newsletter every Friday. So go to Bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for the free membership.